Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and joining me as always is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Thomas, we just wrapped up a fascinating interview with Roger Spitz, who transitioned from investment banking to trying to use complex systems to determine the future course of the world. So rather a large step. How did you feel about the conversation? I, th I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, but then again, I love geek geeky conversations <laughs> like this. So this, uh, 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 yeah, this, this touches uh, part of me that I, I find absolutely fascinating. Just the way to think about the world. I mean, he got into a little bit of climate change, which, um, which I have lots lots of issues with climate change because they, they want to make everybody scared about the climate, but there's nothing that the average person can do about the climate. Um, uh, it's if they made it about pollution, we all know what to do about pollution. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, his his the way he was talking through it, I thought was was very helpful. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's this tension that runs through some of his his comments. Where on the one hand, he's he's very in favor of decentralized solutions to these problems, but he's also interested in problems that are sort of global in scale. And so I thought it was very fascinating to listen to him talk through some of those issues and his approach and the different tool boxes that he he pulls concepts from to try to grapple with those and we we didn't get it in, into it a whole lot but i think that's something that futurists have to think about as well it's I mean, so you're in favor of of decentralized solutions and yet you're dealing with global problems like climate change or the possibility of an arms race that leads in a super leads to a super intelligent algorithm that uh, becomes then problematic and hard to manage so uh I don't know that we solved all those issues in this conversation, but it was nevertheless fascinating and and really fun to get his perspective on those things. Yeah, when he talked about regulators, um, he's not a big fan of having a lot of regulators. Right, right. Um, but as I as I think through this, we're moving into more and more complex world mm -hmm. ahead, and at the same time, we're automating lots of jobs out of existence. So I actually think uh, the job of a regulator or a monitor. I think that's going to be one of the dominant positions that's out there. It'd probably be called something different, but that that's essentially what the people will be doing. Now, smart contracts, we're, we're going to automate them too. We, we don't need the regulators. We're going to smart contract it. The whole government, the whole state is just going to be on the, on the Ethereum virtual machine. So Maybe. everybody, we hope, we, we hope you like this interview with Roger Spitz. Tonight, we're joined by Roger Spitz. Based in San Francisco, Roger Spitz is president of Techistential, a global foresight strategy consulting firm, and he's chairman of the Disruptive Futures Institute. Roger has given over 100 keynote talks globally, is a frequent contributor across leading media, and has delivered guest lectures at many of the world's most prestigious academic institutions. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com.
Roger, thanks so much for coming on the Futurati podcast. It's my pleasure. Great to see you guys. Tell us a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. So it's a, it's a long journey, but I'll give you a shorter version. Um, I spent 20 years as, a, as an investment banker advising companies and boards and their shareholders on the most strategic deals, M&A, uh, venture capital fundraisings, IPOs, and the like. And that was great. It was forward thinking and uh, strategic, or so I thought. Um, but over the years, in particular, when I got to San Francisco six years ago, I went down a rabbit hole, which led me to complexity, systems thinking, futures, foresight, and those kind of things, and decided to actually um, spend my time full time thinking about more systemic change than kind of more transaction by transaction. So I broadened and deepened my focus on the future. We've all been down that rabbit hole. Uh, talk to us a little bit about your... Talk to us a little bit about your methodology. So you said that you were in investment banking, you advised these people strategically, but then retooled later on by studying futurism and complex systems specifically. So I guess walk us through your process. How, how do you think about uh, systemic change? Sure. So, I mean, I, I guess probably as as mo most or many foresight practitioners, I spent a lot of time, you know, on the complexity and uh, a number of aspects, but really from a toolbox perspective, I think the futures and foresight field uh, has been helpful. So, you know, one of the areas I spend a lot of time on is climate and sustainability. I spend a lot of time both on the technology AI side, side as an investor or, or on boards. Um, I'm on the sustainability um, climate intelligence council of a, of a company called Service and do, you know, various other things um, around disclosure, governance and ESG. And the way I approach all these topics for systemic change in our complex world is is literally thinking about systemic change going back to Donella Meadows. So thinking about, you know, what are the levers for change? Um, how is a particular situation or company or or, or whatever focus I'm having um, <clears throat> addressing the systemic change and the strongest levers of change? At what levels are we affecting change? And um, and then also, you know, how are we thinking about um the different possible outcomes, which are you know broader than than how many people think, longer timeframes and broader broader frameworks, um, bro sorry, broader perspectives in terms of imagining uh, what how the world might pan out or situations. So, you know, it's really that lens of broader, deeper, um, more alternative um, outcomes than the kind of more strategic basic uh, scenarios, and then then how do you implement change, and then. We have what we call the AAA um, way of thinking about it, which is, you know, anti-fragile foundations from Nassim Taleb, anticipatory, which is effectively foresight, and then agility is the agility to sort of zoom in, zoom out of shorter time frames because only the, the present exists as you emerge, but constantly reconciling that with, with longer ways of thinking about it. So for us, agility is really the emergence in the here and now without disconnecting from um, from sort of longer term um, uh, visions, visioning, um, and preparing for many different different outcomes. What so, was the so, second A? Let me get the second A. I didn't get it. So it's anti-fragility, anti-fragile foundations. Agility is the third one. What's the second one? It, it's effectively anticipatory. Anticipatory, okay. Thank Which you. I don't I don't use in the strictest sense of some of our peers. So people like uh, Roberto Pauli, Pauli, sorry, um, or people like Real Miller have anticipatory in a in a very specific um, perspective. We're not dogmatic. We take anticipatory in the broader sure. sense of of thinking, you know, with a futurist lens, 
but thinking about longer time frames and trying to kind of um, not be less surprised than is necessary. Uh, let me let me uh, paint you a scenario and then kind of have you fill in the blanks on how you would think about this. But there's there's been quite a bit of work on space-based power stations recently, and uh, Caltech has had some uh, pretty phenomenal announcements that the the technology that they're working with is uh, pretty well thought through. Now, being able to beam power down to Earth from space is is no um, is no small challenge. There, there's a lot of ways that that can go wrong. And if we can, I mean, taking this another step further, if we can actually beam power down from space, then we should also be able to beam power up from some part of the Earth to uh, a station and then beam it back down to Earth again uh, if we need power in some specific location. Um, how would you go about in, uh, thinking through the challenges involved in this? Uh, so, I mean, you you said it very clearly, right? There are multiple things that can go wrong with this or with anything else, but they also, um, as with any technology, a million things that are magical, right, um, and miraculous. So, you know, there are two, two things I think about, I guess. Um, one is just simply what are the features of technology? Um, it's alive. It's sometimes incomprehensible, it's sometimes irreversible, um, sometimes unpredictable. So trying to think about some of those features and thinking about dissecting to make it maybe less incomprehensible, even though it's a feature, to make it slightly less, or to understand what milestones it might reach in terms of irreversibility, to understand um, that it is unpredictable and therefore that we can't just rely on specific outcomes, which I imagined at the onset. Um, and as you do that, I think the way you know I spend time on on different situations, either as an investor or, or on boards, and that is really just thinking about you know what can you anticipate, and um, what and how do you monitor things, and then as you're picking up things that evolve and things emerge what can be done to mitigate things and so on the anticipation i think it's that distinction between unintended and unanticipated consequences we use that um, dichotomy <clears throat> in terms of things that maybe you could anticipate and think about and often alignment and incentives and a number of governance tools can help you make some distinction between what is anticipated versus and an unintended, the purely unintended, you can't you know, necessarily anticipate, but some things you can. And we almost take a reverse engineering aspect to the Clayton Christensen jobs to be done. So we call it, call it sort of the jobs not to be done. What are the specs for the things that you wouldn't want um, the technology to do? And how do you sort of think about those? Now, invariably, you're not gonna think about everything. And that's precisely, the unpredictability and and certain other features of of innovation novelty technology and so you you need to then monitor right so in the monitoring it's you know who's monitoring what are the potential tipping points that can make it you know certain milestones become irreversible are you taking a systems approach to monitoring for the indirect and next order consequences so it's really 
taking that filter of monitoring, you know, whether it's uh, the um, um, the futures, uh, you know, the futures cones or the what's it called <laughs> from Jerome Glenn, you know, the, the first, second order, third order implications and that. And uh, futures wheel, I'm sorry, <laughs> end of the afternoon for me, evening for oh. you. But so, so you're taking that futures wheel to really think as broadly as possible, but also the systemic elements around, you know, um, especially alignment and incentives and who's actually accountable for the monitoring, who, who is, you know, independent, capable, um, and, and what might be irreversible. So in that case, you're looking for, you know, anomalies, digressions, you're looking for the feed, you know, to, to embed feedback loops into the monitoring itself. And then I guess the better you are at monitoring and the better you are maybe at thinking about certain things that can be maybe anticipated, then the better or more effective any potential mitigation because invariably there is unpredictability, invariably it is novel and invariably there will be surprises. So that's, that's important that monitoring feedback loop um, for the mitigation. Yeah, well, with with a technology like this, the Ukrainian war has uh, created a lot more urgency um, uh, for getting power to places that are sure. uh, difficult to get power to. Um, so a, a good friend of mine who's a space expert, he said that if you're beaming power down to Earth, um, if if you're not going to harm the birds and the bees and the butterflies with the beam that's coming down to earth, then it probably isn't going to generate any power. And so there's um, there there's that aspect of it as well. Uh, how how dangerous is something like this? And so I guess that would fit well in your model there. Yeah, and you know it's it's. It's quite interesting that you bring up the technologies and the <clears throat> Ukraine war because, and although it's not the same use case you're describing, uh, Thomas, I think when you look at some of the decentralized models and the you know Earth observations, um, when you look at the the Elon Musk setup of Starlink and that, and you know it's 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 fascinating. I mean, of course, there's a there's a very kind of um, tragic context, but it's it's fascinating from a kind of resilience and anti-fragility perspectives um the that kind of model now admittedly it's not necessarily as potent directly as what you're describing right so there's a different consideration but just as an aside it's really fascinating to see how threatened the chinese are with the, the decentralized models that you can't kind of basically tamper with and at the same time how the us dod are spending a lot of time checking that their own um future and and you know investments in their own systems are kind of have certain of these uh, more decentralized systems and that but uh but you know to, to come back to the point around um you know how, how how are the impacts and that ultimately the You know, the, these kind of innovations, and particularly when it comes to power, I think even from a climate perspective, it's, you know, I was at a talk from uh, Ken Stanley Robinson in San Francisco a few months back, who was sort of talking about his book, Ministry for the Future, and he was sort of saying what he projected as an urgency of 20, 30 years is now 10 years, basically. He wrote it in 2019, as you know, so it's, it's really pretty recent. And even just the two, three years since then, gave him kind of like a decade urgency as opposed to 20, 30 years. So I think to your point, 
whether it's geopolitical or um, climate or other kind of existential considerations, you may not always have the time to to test everything you want in terms of some novelties, um, which are maybe going to bring unexpected negative consequences. At the same time, we can't really just sit there and, and watch the world kind of become inhabitable. So. Yeah, so do you build models of these industries? You, know, you talked about the monitoring, the feedback, the accountability, the incentives, all, all of that is you know, obviously very important stuff. But uh, when you're thinking these through, it seems like you're drawing a lot from complex systems. So I'm just wondering if you build mathematical models of these things, or if you're just more relying on heuristics, uh, when you're trying to parse out the unintended and, and um, unanticipated consequences and those sorts of things, like, what's, that, what's that process look like? Sure. So, <clears throat> just to be to be you know to be clear at my end, we are not sitting there trying to measure, build everything, reinvent the wheel. Um, a, there's a question as to whether the value added for for the kind of work I do. I know there's different views in the field, so I'm respectful of those who take a different approach. But there's you know there's only so much, or maybe no data that actually looks at the um, the future. So um, the, you know, the idea of modeling, you know, if I work for service who's focused on climate intelligence, they have 100 plus post PhD scientists, etc. And they're taking the best, you know, science led um, models and statistics and neural networks, etc. that that exists, and they're doing their kind of job around them. Now, when I'm thinking about advising them or working on the Climate Intelligence Council or other things, I don't necessarily have to be the one that that's building a model for that. So I think in the monitoring, I think it's the same with, you know, if you, if you think about just to be very concrete, if you take about, think about climate and energy transition, you know, the way I think about monitoring is spending time looking at SEC disclosure around ESG and climate, for instance, and what companies might have to do, what might be helpful, not helpful, what levers of change that kind of disclosure might have versus other initiatives and looking at what whether that kind of makes sense and then the various securities exchanges or legislators or whoever will pass regulations in different countries and it will help certain disclosure and it will allow the world to monitor it i'm not necessarily the one sitting there monitoring what all this disclosure looks like and and that i just cognizant of certain things that are probably helpful to disclose and that monitoring over the time are, are kind of helpful and so i I fit into that aspect of um, of review, input, or what have you. So you mentioned earlier that there are different levers of systemic change. I, I think that some of those we can anticipate, entrepreneurship, for example, innovations, uh, regulations. Are, are there any that you think might surprise the audience? Are there any levers of power that would not make it on the list that I just sort of generated off the top of my head? Yeah, listen, it's 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 an interesting question, and a lot of the discussion can revolve around semantics, right? So maybe we always have a broad set of uh, listeners. You you're both fo focused on fascinating things, and um, <clears throat> which are much broader than just foresight and futures. Covers technology and all kinds of elements. So just maybe for those who are less familiar with um, with the, the sort of terms I was trying to use. What, what I mean by systemic change and levers for change in complex systems is referring to um, the levers for change which Donna, Meadow, Don, Donna, Donna Meadows um, wrote about, whereby 
the strongest lever for change is to do with worldviews and mindsets and, and effectively education. And then there's a very important lever around structures. So, you know, for instance, regulation is less effective as a lever for change than education, for instance. Um, and then the levers that are around disclosure or monitoring, and that is less effective than the structures themselves. And then there are a bunch of things above the surface, like a press release saying, I'm going to do wonders to the world and not emit carbon and save the world. That is pretty much worth nothing as a lever for change. So I think in terms of the levers for change, just really thinking, you know, below the iceberg, what is, you know, supporting mindsets? What is supporting the assumptions we make about the world? What is supporting the worldviews you have? And, and that's education in the broadest possible sense, including, you know, governance and leadership teams and, and that. And then if you change the regulations, that is a strong lever. So these can be subsidies or tax or a million different things. And when I say, again, regulations and structures can also include incentives. Incentives determine outcomes. So what do incentives look like? How do you, you know? And then the monitoring and the disclosure of that, disclosure of that is, is a strong lever for change, but not as effective as the structures or necessarily kind of the education side. So that's that's what I mean by that. So when you're looking at a situation, like take a new technology, take what Thomas described earlier, the question for me would be, you know, Thomas framed it with a specific question around how do you monitor it? How do you think about it? But one of the aspects, you know, I'm interested in is, is it, a, especially here in Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of it, is it a point solution or is it addressing, you know, systemic change? How does it fit and scale um, in a systemic complex world and a lot of the things that might work in consumer lovely app or stupid gadget or whatever is just simply ineffective in a complex world um and complex topics like climate or, or other things you know the point solutions don't work so that's when one goes back to thinking fundamentally about what is fundamental transformation what kind of technology and, and rollout and effect can you have to affect change as opposed to be a nice gadget or point solution? Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Yeah, you've been talking a lot about regulators, and it seems like with the uh the latest crypto meltdown here that we're going to move into an era of a lot of uh, regulators taking the forefront, um, uh, try to wrestle some of the, the problems to the ground. I've, I've always, I always find this uh, kind of a curious topic because I, I don't know any 10 or 12 year old kid growing up that says, yeah, I'd love to grow up to be a regulator. Um, that's just not, that's not a career path anybody uh, aspires to go down. Uh, and I, I don't know anybody, uh, any colleges that are uh, giving a degree in uh, being a regulator. Um, so so I was, uh, 
So what 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 kind of qualifications does a person need to to be an effective regulator, and um, and how how do you because I I actually see when we get into an era of AI and lots of other technology that I think we're going to have to have more and more levels of regulation that get built into things. Um, how do you how do you see this as um, yeah, kind of unfolding over the coming years? And uh, do you subscribe to that line of thinking? Yeah, so <clears throat> again, just to kind of um, think about the different layers of the, the question, right? I think, first of all, I'm not necessarily advocating regulation or sort of suggesting it's, it's a fix or anything. I'm just observing that in the different levers of change, the structures is a piece of it that, that is a lever that's important. In structures, you have policies, you have incentives, you have regulations and a bunch of things. Um, so it's one of the levers that kind of affect the way the world governance systems might be structured. Um, so it's, you know, again, not pushing for it or pulling from it, just, you know, observing that it's a feature. Now, the second observation, which is probably the most important one, is that I fundamentally believe in a decentralized direction of the world. I think that if you look at the drivers of change and disruption or, um, and again, disruption, not necessarily in a negative sense, we use it right, right. quite neutrally. Um, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily negative. Um, decentralization is, is definitely a feature of the way the world is going. And the third element of context when we think about regulation is that in my humble opinion, when you're looking at a complex systemic world, it's not controllable by definition. So if you think about um, imposing control, rigid, hierarchical, or control structures through regulation for something complex, I don't believe that you can control that ultimately. I think it, it has a degree embedded of unpredictability and uncontrollability, both technology and complexity itself. So when you think about, for instance, um, uh, to be to be to be um, concrete, you know, people talk about legislating um, Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I'm not suggesting that 100% laissez-faire is perfect, although it's debatable that it, you know, whether it's it's better. But what I do personally believe is that the way you took antitrust and regulation in the 70s or 80s for the rail industry or the telecom industry was probably more apt at the time because it didn't have so many features. Of, of what is our complex world today, hyper-connected, multiple drivers of change, everything that makes it complex. And so if you made a change to the rail or telecom industry, maybe you couldn't anticipate or control everything, but probably it was more controllable. I'm not sure today that even the wisest people in the world, if they were to, to tweak you know, the way Google or Facebook or whichever platform is organized or structured or owned or its scope of its activities, if you were to regulate that, I'm not necessarily sure that you'd create something necessarily better. You'd create maybe another monster or something different or it'd morph to something else. It's just not definable what it becomes. So having contextualized what I meant by regulation, in other words, it's not necessarily a fix, it's not necessarily effective, et cetera. As part of the broader bundle of structures, regulation is a consideration. And I think in climate, if you take climate, you know, we all know that incentives ultimately determine the outcomes. So if you regulate certain things that push certain incentives in a direction, maybe some of them are supportive of of the changes that are required for companies to do what they need to do. So today, if you take, you know, take take the case of climate, for instance, and regulation. 
Um, today, you have basically cock industries and a bunch of heavy pockets and the oil industries, which are basically manipulating and, you know, for want of a better word, lobbying or bribing the, the, the constituents which make legislations. They are basically, you know, it's the Munger rule, which is the incentives determine the outcomes. They're being lobbied to legislate in a way that's favorable to the oil industry, and therefore that's not necessarily helpful. If you were to regulate certain other things, maybe that could point the word the world towards doing certain things that are more appropriate um, for the planet. And then if you monitor those and you incentivize correctly, maybe that doesn't hurt. Or at the consumer level, if you incentivize to buy something that's cheaper and that's more um, friendly to the planet, those are sort of subsidies that can be helpful. So in that context of legislation, um, you know, for some, it might mean kind of lobbying or or what have you from a political perspective. Um, but I think you, you can approach it from from any aspect. I think today I'm seeing, you know, youngsters, other people studying philosophy with a view of thinking about AI ethics. Is that legislation or just thinking ethically or philosophically mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. AI? There's an intersection with regulation, again, using it in the broader sense of what are the structures and the ways of, of thinking about, um, you know, monitoring, anticipating, and, and potentially mitigating some of these things. So I don't see legislation as a particular, you know, fix, nor as a particular perfect path. But I think around legislation, whether you approach it from law, from policy, ultimately, I think it needs to be multidisciplinary for these kind of complex topics like technology or AI. And therefore, you know, I think you can go from it from an anthropologist or from philosophy or from probably it should be addressed from a broad set of subjects. I think if I were to answer your question, Thomas, as to just go through a good law school and become, you know, I think we'd have a problem because I think a lot of these things are multi-dimensional, are, are complex, um, and precisely should not be approached from a kind of narrow, singular, cookie-cutter um, approach of just studying law or what have you. <laughs> Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati Podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Yeah, we kind of see in the conversations when uh, Mark Zuckerberg was deposed how astonishingly lightweight many of the regulators were in their understanding of the underlying technologies. And I remember just watching some of those thinking like, these are the people that are going to write the laws and they just fundamentally do not understand this technology or how it works. And they would ask him questions and you could see in a sort of like robot brain, <laughs> like thinking about how he wants to, uh, to answer that question without being a jackass to sitting senators, you know, where he couldn't believe that he was being asked some of the questions he was being asked. Um, <laughs> it's it's so, somewhat scary. He's like, well, Senator, that's, uh, that's not how the internet works. That's just, it's not big tubes, yeah. you know, it's like data <laughs> being transferred back and forth uh, to, to switch gears a little bit. You, you think a lot, about <laughs> technologies and the way the world is going. Are there three or four technological trends that you find especially worthy of comment, either because they're very promising or very scary? Yeah, look, um, I think like, so, so a few thoughts. One is, I think today I kind of try to stop thinking about isolated technologies. I don't think that that 
means anything or or exists or is a way of analyzing the way technologies are evolving. So I really consider that what's essential is that feature of you know combinatorial converging fusion and not just fusion amongst technologies, but fusion between technologies and 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 humans, right? And I know both of you spend a lot of time thinking about and discussing these these topics. So within that, you know, what are the building blocks and the elements that give you certain combinations that are um, quite powerful when you think about the future? You know, it's it, I guess it's anything to do with you know genetic nanotech. Um, robotics, AI, cognitive science. It's its really a combination of those things, including materials technology and that. So we we feel very strongly that, you know, the eye of intersecting is really an absolutely key word. It's, it's that that creates um, disruption and is a big driver of change. So I'd say that the combination of all those, you know, some people call them the GNRs or N NBICs or whatever, you know, genetic, nanotech, robotics and that. So that's one element. And within that, you know, there's a subset. Just you know, speaking about the obvious, which is which is you know neural networks and machine learning, right? Because um, the, the I personally think the progress of that has reached an inflection point over the past two years, with partly because of natural language processing, so the kind of voice and understanding element, but also machine vision. So the combination of those two are probably quite powerful to bring certain things to to the next level. Um, the one area I, I'm surprised that the world isn't spending more time thinking about is really, you know, the, the broader aspect of, of information. Um, so, you know, obviously there's disinformation, but it's really just bringing that to the next degree of understanding what information is. We call it interruption, you know, the disruption of information. As it's you know you know weapons of mass disinformation, it's you know it's it's an impact on on democracies. It's a uh, it's uh, you know if you think about the elections that have just happened in the U.S. 2016 2020, if you think about the Brazil elections, if you think about Brexit, if you think about the anti-vaxxers, if you think about the European elections, you know it's it's 4951, and that maximal polarization. You know, the Russians were very good. They invented the word disinformation 100 years ago. So what a lot of people don't realize when they just look at Facebook and that is that they are puppeteers and these outside agents, outside actors, which, you know, are helped by polarization domestically. You know, Russia, Iran, China are capable of doing things with information which have radical implications for, for democracy and many things. If you add to that the idea of splinternet, um, that for me is one of the biggest directions of technologies, which I think are worrying. Because with splinternet, you effectively, you know, today, as you know, you have China, which has its own digital walls and, and, and all that for controlling information. But what people kind of don't necessarily think about is, is that China provides a lot of the 5G and then 6G technology to, to a lot of Africa and a lot of other countries. Um, and if you think about where the population is going, 70% of the population is kind of not, you know, US, Europe, and a few, you know, of the countries we think dominate the world. And those countries are also increasing in, in GDP. So once you start controlling alternative realities or whatever you call it, you're no longer looking at just a few nation states that are putting a bit of, you know, mess in certain westernized democracies you're looking at potentially the control 
of big chunks of Africa, big chunks of Asia, parts of the Middle East, parts of, of LATAM, potentially with, with a technology which, which has basically an alternate universe. And that is that has very significant ramifications on, on all kinds of aspects. So that's the second thing I'll add is the splinter net. I guess the third one is anything that touches the body, right? So whether it's um, you know, brain-computer interface or whether it's uh other kind of genetic CRISPR, I think all of those aspects. I think are, are both dangerous and, and fascinating for the potential to cure diseases and that. But that's where I really use the word um, irreversibility in terms of understanding what irreversibility could mean at what point you need to think about it. And then it comes back to what we were discussing earlier around how do you try and anticipate certain things, monitor and mitigate, because once you have something that might be irreversible, the, the stakes are different. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah, we've um, we've played around with this, uh, discussed this uh digital twin technology and the idea that we, we could wear a special pair of smart glasses and and your digital twin could see everything you're seeing and hear everything you're hearing and then with other um, sensors that you could also uh, get the feeling and the smells and the tastes and all of that um, and so you you have a digital twin with perfect recall. Now Elon Musk is going down a little different path with Neuralink, and um, doing uh, inserting probes into people's heads, uh, mm-hmm. which which I don't think is um, going to get widespread appeal anytime soon. Uh, there are two fascinating different approaches to accomplishing the same thing. Uh, how would you go about? Uh, deciding uh, which which one of these is is going to take a more prominent prominent place in society, and or do you think they're all going to crash and burn? So I'm going to disappoint you, maybe, but I I try not to spend too much time kind of um, seeking to predict this or that technology. I think the the two two ways two filters I have to to your question and thinking about it. One is looking at you know, what are kind of the, the drivers that you're moving towards? And I think that whether it's technology A or technology B, it almost, I, mean, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but I would say that's what interests me is, you know, you're moving to a world which is virtualized, which is, you know, digitized, which is cognified, um, all of those features. And, and within that, there's a very significant role which is being played um, by technology specifically and decision-making. And that decision-making is very important to me because anything to do with decision-making, you're no longer just thinking of a technology. That's why, you know, AI, for me, the, the, the challenge in considering AI is the way it affects your own agency, freedom and choice, and your own ability to make decisions. It's really an existential philosophical question more than a technological one. And so that brings me then to not just looking at what are those drivers of where the technologies are going. And I think, again, whether it's technology A or B, whether you call it you know, digital twin, metaverse, BCI, what have you, the question which I really am concerned about every day, rather than 
at my end, just speculating on these possible specific evolutions is what is humanity doing to make sure that we upgrade ourselves organically, that we are able to process complexity, that we are able to make decisions, that we are not becoming, you know, not worrying so much about super intelligence of technology, but a potential for super stupidity of humanity. And <laughs> that is where the, yeah, but it's a, it's a real concern because today technologies and even BCI or the best AI is not super good at processing complex and predictable systems. Mm -hmm. It's much easier with cause and effect and linearity and all that for correlations. And, but machines are learning fast. And if humanity is neither that good at, and is delegating um, decision-making to, to machines, I think that for me is the biggest existential risk. And that for me is the biggest worry. So I'm sorry for taking a tangent on your question, but I, I really, that, those are the things that I think about and that, that concern me rather than, you know, technology A versus B kind of thing. At my yeah, that's a, that's a great way of thinking through it. Roger, where would you send people who want to learn more about your work? Um, thanks for asking, Trent. Listen, we, we've just published a, a pretty massive um, uh, four volumes on these kind of topics. Um, wow. <laughs> we've been giving for the past few years executive education courses, talks, keynotes. And basically, I decided when I saw about a year and a half ago how much interest and how lost the world was with, with pandemics and other things to release this for the general public as a kind of guidebook. Um, so it's quite dense, but we we are told from people who have seen it that it's it's relatively easy to sort of guide your way through it. And so um, there's a website, which is the name of the book, which is Thriving on Disruption. It's called The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruption, the website called Thriving on Disruption. And basically it's available for sale, plus on social media, Disruptive Futures Institute, there's a lot of resources and we'll be you know, ramping that up. But just as a kind of closing comment, rather than you know the big focus of the work is not so much this is what's happening and oh my god or how wonderful or how scary it's really that point i raised earlier which is to understand the agency and the necessity for us to to maybe rewire how we think about the world and to have the tools to do that so we try to have a very significant emphasis on those tools and frameworks and and mindsets which can help um understand and and be relevant in, in today's complex world technological or, or otherwise fantastic we will check all of that out and read all four <laughs> volumes thanks so much for your your insights and your views on complexity systems uh complex systems futurism and and all the rest we really appreciate it fantastic great to see you both this evening have a great yeah. rest of the evening yeah thank you ciao guys thanks so much Okay. Still, still says recording. Is Zoom recording? Yeah, Zoom is still recording. Okay. Oh, excellent. Thanks so much, Roger. That was fascinating. Is that all right? Yeah, no. Not, too, van not too vanilla from your usual topics. I mean, I know you <laughs> guys have these discussions all the time, so hopefully there were one or two things that weren't too redundant with your everyday. No, that, oh, no. Um, that was quite it's, good. It's definitely... It's definitely consistent. So uh, we're getting that answer uh, where people are less interested in individual technologies and how they interact instead. That, that's come up several times. Uh, so that, that's a pretty common theme. We've had a couple of people who were interested in complexity theory and, and using it 
to try to understand and model the world. Model's not the right word, but to understand it and to shape it. And yeah, I thought your breakdown of technologies was interesting. The CRISPR and, and anything touching the body, um, offloading decision-making, that's also something I worry about. I don't think we understand these algorithms well enough to do that. And yeah, no, on the whole, I thought it was uh, very good stuff. Yeah. So where, where are you off to next, Roger? Generally, you know, in terms of... Yeah, do you have a big project you're working on or... Um, no, thanks for asking, Thomas. I mean, I'm at the beginning of this because, I mean, I've, I've actually been following and known you for years, but until three years ago, I was full-time investment banking. I kind of lived on a plane. Um, so this is quite new. Five, six years ago, I started, you know, I did a few calls at Santa Fe Institute and Institute uh, for the yeah. Future and with our friends, Peter and Andy at, at Houston and those kind of things. But so it's still quite new to me, but um, the next level, I think, is, you know, we're getting pretty interesting demand from our executive program. So, um, you know, we're, we're rolling those out, um, digitizing some of them, and, uh, you know, effectively, we built a program from scratch over kind of three, four years mm -hmm. on this broad set of topics. So we, well, that, you know, we're kind good. of in in rollout scale mode for the next at least year or two. Okay. All right. Fantastic. That's, that's really good. You have to let Thank us know you. how that goes. We're, we're doing some course building around here too. Yeah. We, well, we're happy to exchange notes at any time or. Okay. Yeah. I've, we've just come out with uh, future like a boss, um, which is. <laughs> uh, acronym is F-Lab. <laughs> yeah, flab. Yeah, that's love it. Love it. Not, Intentional not a... or not, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, fantastic. So. Um, thanks so much. So this is episode one nineteen, and so you're probably taught. Well, no, this this will probably come out this year. Um, we're we're gonna eat up some of the surplus over the holiday season because we're we're like we're too far ahead now. So, uh, it's getting unwieldy and uh, ridiculous. So I, I think we're gonna you'll you'll probably come out if you do. It'll be December. It might edge sure. over to 2023, but we'll let you know when it goes out and you can promote it on your channels. Oh, great. And we really appreciate sure. it. If you want to chat again, just let us know. No, I would All love right. to. I mean, let's let's maybe do that over next, you know, whenever you guys have time. But I'd love to kind of have a exchange notes for sure. Okay. Sounds good. Appreciate All it. Right. Roger. That's terrific. Thanks, Roger. Keep well. Bye -bye. Have a good one. Ciao. Thanks. Well. Bye. bye bye. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.